the temple, which means they can carry on having a relationship with God with the sacrificial system because that's all based around the, the temple. They also have the kings and David's line carrying on. Why is that important? Because there's been prophecies that one of the kings from David's line will be the great king, the great king that God's going to send to save his people permanently and perfectly, which is going to be Jesus. So Judah, although it's smaller, is very significant because it keeps Jerusalem, keeps the temple, keeps the kings in David's line. Now, once it's divided... Sometime later, a neighbouring nation called Assyria, Assyria becomes the superpower of the day. And they start, unlike some superpowers who are more benevolent, uh, Assyria is not. They conquer people. And Assyria comes in and basically they, they conquer the northern kingdom. So, numerically speaking, the majority of Israelites cease to be at that point. They're either killed or lost or through intermarriage they they stop basically being Israelites. So that happens. It's divided, northern kingdom gone by Assyria, and in about 150 years after the northern kingdom's gone, what will happen is the local superpower changes. Now, this always happens, doesn't it? The big dog gets old and the little pup gets up and takes over. That's what happens. And the little pup here is Babylon. And Babylon is, Babylon is going to come in and wipe out Assyria and Babylon will do what Assyria didn't do. Babylon will come in and also destroy the southern kingdom, will destroy Jerusalem and the temple and will take the remaining Israelites as prisoners into Babylon. So chapter 1 verse 6 shows us where we are in that time frame. Habakkuk is writing that this whole prophecy is taking place after Israel's split into two, after Assyria has taken the northern kingdom, but before Babylon has come in, risen to power and taken the southern kingdom. So Habakkuk is in probably Jerusalem, certainly Judah, in the southern kingdom after the northern kingdom's gone but before the Babylonians have come in. And once we've placed it like that, we know a little bit more about the situation. We know a bit more about what Judah was like in those days. And what you see when you read through the rest of the Old Testament at this particular period of time is that Judah, the Israelites, are getting worse and worse spiritually. They should have learnt from the northern kingdom not to turn their backs on God, not just, just to live their own ways and to copy the people around them, but to serve the Lord faithfully. But, but Judah don't learn from them. They've, they've gone bad spiritually. And of course, as soon as you go bad spiritually, you then go bad morally. Those two things always go hand in hand. I hope you know that's always true, by the way. As soon as you go wrong spiritually, what happens? You lose objective morality. One of the, the privileges of being a Christian is we know right and wrong. And we know it because we're not making up our own opinion of it. God's told us, the one who's created us, the one who knows. There's a wonderful privilege to know right and wrong. As soon as you start going bad spiritually, you lose objective morality. I'm not saying there's some morality that's not a bit greyer and those sorts of things, but you, as soon as you go bad spiritually, you lose objective morality. And suddenly, how do we decide what's right and wrong? Personal preference view of the majority or political power. You must live this way, you must not live the other way. That's what's going on back then. I would argue that's what's going on now, but there you go. I think we'll see a lot of similarities between the time of Habakkuk and us. Well, this is Judah. 
They're supposed to be the people of God. They're supposed to be a beacon of light to the world around them, but they are corrupt morally, they're crooked politically, and they're ignoring and turning their back on the God who saved them and who showed them how to live. Again, do you see how current this is? And Habakkuk is looking round at this. He's looking round amongst God's people with the temple and all that they've been given. And he's saying, God, do something about this. We've gone terrible. We've gone evil. And I'm not talking about the Assyrians out there or the Babylonians. Within ourselves, we've gone, but please do something about it, God. So that's the context of the book of Habakkuk. And Habakkuk is three chapters long, and unlike most of the prophetic books, which are really the words of the prophet that we receive, Habakkuk's not like that. Habakkuk is a a conversation between Habakkuk and God. And what you get is a series of questions or complaints. I use the word complaint because Habakkuk uses it of himself in the last verse of our passage this morning, chapter 2, verse 1. He says it's a complaint. So Habakkuk has all these questions he's firing at God or complaints he's making to God and then God answers them. So you get a complaint by Habakkuk and an answer from God. A follow-up complaint from Habakkuk, a follow-up answer, a follow-up and so on, until you get to chapter 3 and that's a prayer of Habakkuk. So that's how it um, all fits together. And we're going to look at the the, the book, as I said, over three weeks, basically one chapter each week. And if you want the movement, I think it goes from uh, doubting today to waiting to trusting What you find in the book is there's a movement from chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, where where Habakkuk's saying, how long, O Lord? And in verse he's saying, why God? To the end where um, he's worshipping God. And so it's a movement in Habakkuk from why God to worshipping God. But we'll see how Habakkuk gets there. And it's not as neat as that. There's a bit of uh, overlapping and those sorts of things. So that's enough, I hope, on... Uh, general things about Habakkuk uh, as a whole. Let me uh, show you, let's get into the specifics a bit more and I want to show you how the passage fits together because again even this can be tricky because it's not clear at first who's speaking or when the the, the speaker changes. So let me point a few markers out to you. Have a look at verses 1 to 4. This is the first section and really this is Habakkuk speaking and he's outlining his problem. This is his first problem, his first question, his first complaint, if you like. And he's saying, do something about the evil in Judah, God. Have a look at it. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received, how long, O Lord, must I call for help but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There's strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law's paralysed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem and the righteous so that justice is perverted. So that's his complaint to God. Then in verse 5, although it's not marked, it's God now speaking. He's answering Habakkuk. And he basically says, well I am going to do something Habakkuk. I'm going to bring in the Babylonians to sort out the evil of Judah. Probably not the answer Habakkuk's expecting or hoping for, and we'll think about that in a moment. But do you see how it changes in verse 5? This is now God speaking. Look at the nations and watch, and be utterly amazed. 
For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They're a feared and dreaded people. They're a law to themselves and promote their own honour. And he goes on to describe how evil the Babylonians are, lots of wicked animals uh, kind of thing, and that, he, but he, that he's going to use the Babylonians to sort out the problem of evil in Judah. Well then... Verse 12, it's back to Habakkuk and he basically says, well, why are you going to do that? His first question was, please do something, but now it's, why are you going to do that? You're going to have Babylon come in and decimate Judah and sort out the evil? Why would you do that, God? Have a look at verse 12. O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. Lord, you've appointed them to execute judgment. O Lord, you've ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallows up those more righteous than themselves? And he goes on to liken Judah to fish and Babylon to fishermen. And I'm sorry if this offends any fishermen here, but... The fishermen are the baddies here. Babylon are the baddies. He says, why are you going to let them just swallow them up? Swallow Judah up in this way. So they're the three sections in this first chapter. You've got verses 1 to 4, Habakkuk's first problem or complaint. Then verses 5 to 11, God's answer to that. And then verses 12 to 17, Habakkuk's follow-up because he's not keen on the answer. So we'll have a very quick look at each of the three sections. I'm, I'm, I apologise we're only doing kind of glancing over it because we've had to do such a, a kind of setup. So verses 1 to 4, and I've um, very cleverly headed this, why don't you do something? Because that's the, that's the point. Why don't you do something? But before we look at what Habakkuk says, I want you to ask yourself a question here. Have you ever asked something like that of God? Why don't you do something? When something's happened to you or around you to do with people that you know or love, have you ever felt that way with God? Where are you, God? What are you doing? Why are you allowing such a thing to happen? Why have you not stopped such a thing to happen? Why don't you do something, God? Habakkuk is living amongst the people of God, the the Christians of the day, if I can put it like that, and instead of them being godly and faithful, they're evil. They're they're compromising on behaviour and living their way, not God's ways. They're copying the non-Christians around them. Again, do you see how similar this is to our time? And as I said, when you turn away from the Lord, your morals become unhinged. And so Habakkuk is looking out at the people of God and he's so discouraged by what he sees. He sees violence, verse 2. He sees injustice, verse 3. At the end of verse 3, he sees destruction and strife and conflict, not outside, inside. He sees more injustice in verse 4. And he sees evil people getting away with things and the vulnerable suffering. And Habakkuk cries out to God, are you going to do something about this? And I want you and I to feel the weight of what he's doing here. We'll feel the weight more when we realise he doesn't just have a problem with evil. Everyone's got a problem with evil. He's got a problem with God's seeming inaction towards evil. His problem is he's crying out to God and God doesn't seem to be doing anything about it. His problem is unanswered prayer. His problem is the God that he's always thought is good and will do good things does not seem to be doing those good things. God seems to be allowing evil to flourish and good people are suffering as a result. Do you feel, have you ever felt something like this before with God? 
We all have. And so verse 2 he says, how long, O God, will you allow this to happen? Verse 3 he says, why God are you allowing this to happen? But notice he goes further and I want you to, to feel the weight of it. Uh, it may shock you kind of how strong Habakkuk is here, but we're supposed to notice it. In verse 2, he accuses God of not listening to him. You're not listening to me, God. In verse 2, he accuses God of not saving people. They're huge statements that Habakkuk is making. We have a God who listens and who saves. It's almost fundamental to who he is. Habakkuk says, you're not doing that, God. You're not listening and you're not saving. But again, I'd be surprised if any Christian here this morning hasn't, even if they haven't asked that question, hadn't felt this kind of weight themselves, had the same question or the same complaint at some stage of life. And it could well be some of you right now this morning. Why are you letting me go through this, Lord? Why haven't you stopped that, Lord? Are you not listening, Father? Do you not save anymore? This is expressing a desire to reconcile what you and I see and experience in life with the God that we believe in. And those two things don't seem to match sometimes. That's what, God, that's what Habakkuk's wrestling with uh, here in this book and what you and I wrestle with, certainly at particular times in our lives. I believe that God's good and that he's powerful. Then why isn't he doing something about this? Is he unable? Is he unwilling? What's going on? I don't get this, God. Please do something. And I think you can detect in Habakkuk's tone desperation. I think you can detect even perhaps a hint of bitterness. How can he trust God if this is what's going on? This is huge for him. The stakes are high. How can I juggle what I believe God to be combined with what I see him doing or not doing? Do you see how, and again, so now suddenly we're looking at a book written a long, long time ago at a particular place and culture and situation, and we're saying, but we're going, this is exactly the same as I go through today. Do you see how relevant and contemporary Habakkuk's experience is for us today? I've got no doubt that some here this morning are asking these kind of questions, wrestling or struggling with some of these issues. And so the first section is Habakkuk crying out, Why don't you do something, God? Well, the second section in verse 5, 11, we see God's response to Habakkuk. And I've called this, I am doing something, I'm bringing Babylon. God says, Habakkuk, I am going to do something. And he tells them that he's going to bring Babylon to judge and humble Judah. This is not going to be an answer which is going to be good, is it? Babylon's described even by God in these verses uh, so vividly that they're ruthless and impetuous and they seize other people's dwelling. They're described as wild animals that are violent and destructive. They're described in language that they obey no one else and they worship themselves. And God's going to use them to sort out the evil of Judah. Now before we move into how unsatisfactory this answer is going to be for Habakkuk and things like that, I just want you to notice two good things and encouraging things from these verses. One is, we see here that all of history and all nations are under God's power, under God's sovereignty. God's in charge of it all. He uses the superpower of the day here as if they were nothing more than a pawn in a chess match. Now, there's bigger questions that that raises, but I just want you to see that we sometimes think, well, God can only look after the good people or the small people. No, no, everything's in his hands. And there's, uh, take comfort in that. You and I can sometimes feel pretty small in this world. We can sometimes think this world's going to, to pieces and it's never going to come right. You know, what if, um, what if, I was trying to think of a 
a country that, that if they became the superpower it would be terrible but every country I thought of I thought I'd be accused of racism. Um, what if Australia takes over the world? <laughs> Not right. I love Australia. We, you know, we've had America as the superpower in, uh, in the world in the last little while and I think sometimes we're pretty unkind to America. They've been one of the best superpowers of, uh, of kind of around. But what if another one comes? Well, another one will come. That's history. But they too will be in God's hands. Israel was in God's hands. Assyria was in God's hands. Babylon was in God's hands. America's in God's hands. Even Australia's in God's hands. No, no. Uh, God's in charge. That's a good thing. So remember that from this kind of section. But also this section shows us God uses even the evil in this world to bring about his good purposes. And again, I, I sometimes feel like if we don't think about this or aren't reminded specifically about it, we can just think, well, God only uses good people or nice situations to bring about good. Not a bit of it. He even brings his good through evil. Just by the way, that's why you should always beware judging the means by the ends in Christian things. Because uh, Christians do this all the time. Well, good things happen, so it must be of God. Really? Um, God can use the evil of concentration camps to bring people to saving faith in the Lord Jesus. He can use the evil of the Babylonians to refine his people. And ultimately, of course, he can use the wickedness of a wrongful execution to save the world. The cross is the ultimate expression of evil, evil meant by people being used for the ultimate good by God. And that's good news because it means that nothing in this world, even the most awful experiences that you may have gone through or you may have witnessed others, is not meaningless in this world and God can still bring good from it. It means that he can bring good out of even me and my corrupt heart and it's good that God can do that. So be encouraged by those two things. Um, so that's God's answer, verses 5 to 11. I'm bringing in the Babylonians. Lastly, I want to look at the, finish with the, the last section, 12, verse 12 through to chapter 2, verse 1, and we see Habakkuk's follow-up problem, his follow-up complaint. And I've called this, well, why would you do that? So he says, do something. God says, I'm going to. Got it covered. And he goes, well, why would you do that? Habakkuk hears God's answer and says, what the heck? You're going to do what? Verse 13, God, you're pure. Why will you tolerate the treacherous? Why will you be silent while the wicked swallow up those less wicked? He's not denying they're wicked, but they're more wicked. Why are you going to do that? And he goes on to use that fish and fisherman imagery to ask the same question. He can't work it out. It makes no sense to him. In fact, I'd go further and say it seems wrong to him. This doesn't seem right, God. It doesn't seem just. Can you feel what Habakkuk's feeling? He's prayed to God, he's begged God for an answer, he's actually got an answer, but that's not what he was expecting, not what he was hoping for, not even what he thinks is right. And again, you and I get this, don't we? Hasn't this been our experience at different stages in our Christian life? Where we pray to God and don't get what we we think is right and proper coming back and we're... To my shame, I often pray to God about something I'm worried about or worried about how it will turn out and God's very lucky because I've already worked out what he needs to do to answer my prayer. And I'm amazed sometimes that, well, hang on, I thought I'd told you this, God, this is the way this should. I know that sounds kind of arrogant and crazy, but that can be our attitude with our prayers to the Lord. And this whole chapter, this whole book at one level is clear that God's ways are not our ways. 
If you get nothing else from Habakkuk, get that. God's ways are not our ways. Often you and I will not understand what God is doing as he works in his world. We will not get it. And the sooner we accept that, the better. The sooner we accept we're not God and don't know his ways, the better off we'll be. We will sometimes feel like he's not doing anything. And he may be, we just can't see it. We will sometimes, he will sometimes give unexpected answers like he does here, which we cannot fathom or work out what he's thinking about. He will sometimes use unexpected people or situations or events or instruments to do things. His ways are not our ways. And verses 13 to 17 here show Habakkuk clearly didn't get this at this stage. And Habakkuk, Habakkuk was in a better position than we are usually, right? Because he got an answer. Habakkuk prayed and then God spoke to him and he got an answer and he still says, don't like the answer. Often you and I are not in as good a boat as Habakkuk because we pray, we don't hear anything, we just see what goes on around and we don't get that. Habakkuk at least got an answer but then still didn't like it. But you and I go through similar things and we we can't accept it or we don't understand it. Be prepared, friends, for God not working as we do. His answers not being necessarily what you and I think they should be. His timing is not ours. Isn't that good? Because his timing's perfect. He's operating on a completely different level than you and I. We only see things with our narrow vision. He sees everything. He's doing it for every person over all of history, all the nations. We just think about it from ours. He knows the beginning from the end. He knows the details that you and I don't. He knows the unforeseen consequences that you and I have got no idea of. He knows it all and we will not always understand. And The, 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 the quicker we accept that, the better off we'll be. And So the third point there is, why would you do that, God? because his ways are not our ways. So I hope that's given you a a bit of a taste of the book and a bit of a taste of where we're going with it and and this chapter in particular. And I hope it's also said that despite it being an old book about a particular situation, you can see how totally relevant and applicable it is for you and I in our lives. You and I still need these principles because this still remains our experience. Do something, God. I have done something. I don't like it. Do something else. It's not neat. It's not wrapped up. But I'm saying we've got to accept it. As I finish, I don't want to just leave it with accept it. Just accept it. Let me give you two very quick things to bear in mind as we struggle to accept God's sovereignty in a world that's so difficult. Two things from this this chapter to bear in mind as you and I doubt and question and complain like Habakkuk. And the first thing I want to say to you is, do it. Doubt, question, complain. That may sound strange to your ears, but I'm saying do it. Habakkuk, like David a few weeks ago, if you were here a few weeks ago when we looked at the psalm, gives you and I permission to doubt and to question and to complain. And part of the reason is, is because, and I hope every Christian here this morning understands this because it's so important, there is a a difference between unbelief and doubt. There is a difference, a key difference between unbelief and doubt. And we need to be clear on it. Unbelief turns away from the Lord. Doubt turns to God and asks why. And that's okay. 
Unbelief is turning away from the Lord. Doubt is turning to the Lord and asking why. There is a difference between complaining about God and complaining to God. And God in his scriptures allows us and I think encourages us to complain to him. His shoulders are big enough. He's secure enough in himself and his plans and he knows what he's doing. But he wants us to be genuine to him. He wants us when we are struggling and we want to cry out and we don't understand and we are uh, all over the place, he wants us to pour our heart out to him in a genuine way. There's nothing worse than being fake or inauthentic. The Lord wants us to be clear and genuine with him. If you're struggling with the Lord and can't understand what he's doing, tell him. Plead with him. Complain to him. That's what David did. That's what Habakkuk did. That's what Jesus did. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's so much going on in that phrase, but part of it at least is him questioning his father. What's going on? The Lord wants us to cry out to him. And so actually, interestingly, a good question to ask from this morning could be, when did you last pray like Habakkuk here? And you might have thought coming into it, well, I don't. I certainly don't complain to God like Habakkuk did. Well, maybe you should. Maybe we should, if we're kind of not being honest, that's not a good thing. We want to cry out to the one who holds the world in his hands and can and will do something about things. So that's one thing. Ask, complain, question. But the other thing I think to do from this chapter is, while we are asking, questioning, complaining, hold on to the truths you do know about God. Hold on to those unchanging, fundamental truths about God that you do know while you're doing the searching and the questioning. Again, I want to suggest Habakkuk does that here. I've kept talking about the last section from verse 12 to 17, but that's not the last section. He speaks in verse 11, sorry, 13 to 17, but he speaks in verse 12 and he speaks in chapter 2, verse 1. And there what I think he's doing on either end of his complaints and his questions, he reminds himself of what he knows about God, holding on to the bedrock truths. In verse 12 he says, Yahweh, that's God in capitals, the personal God who saved his people, the everlasting God, he calls him my God, my Holy One, we will not die. He, he names these truths before he goes on to say, what are you doing? And then he finishes in chapter 2, uh, chapter two, verse 1 with great words, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I'm to give to this complaint. He's going to still wait for the Lord's answer and know certain truths about the Lord in the midst of his questions and his uncertainties. So hold on to what you know about the Lord. Because although we don't always understand his ways, we know the God who does them. And that makes all the difference. Remind yourself of his character. Remind yourself of his promises. Remind yourself ultimately, of course, of his son. So that the glory of the certainties uh, we have of the faith can be mixed with the uncertainties of life that we're going through. So I hope you can see, uh, and I'm sorry it's been kind of racy this morning, but Habakkuk, a prophet from a long time ago, speaking to a situation very different from our own. We're not about to be overtaken by the Babylonians, and yet so much to do with us, isn't there? And I hope we'll carry on seeing that over the next couple of weeks. Let me, let me pray. Father, how long, O Lord? Why? Uh, These will be questions on the lips or in the hearts of each of us at different stages of our life. They may well be questions that are at the forefront of who we are and what we're going through at the moment. And Father, I thank you for 
uh, just seeing that we're not alone in that. Here's Habakkuk, your servant, your prophet, who's going through the same thing. But Father, uh, I pray that um, we would take, uh, I guess, example from, from him, that we too would not seek to deny those things, but we would be open about them and cry honestly to you. And uh, we thank you that we can do that, not just blindly, but with uh, sure and certain hopes about who you are and what you've promised. And that changes everything. Father, please encourage our hearts as we go through times like Habakkuk. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.